you can't sit on the sidelines and get to financial freedom. You cannot save your way. You cannot earn your way to financial freedom. You have to invest your way there. That's Chad Wilson, best-selling author and the founder of Pacific Capital. Great investing most of the time is really boring. It doesn't have a sexy story that you're excited about. It just compounds and grows, kind of like a farmer out there just working the fields. Eventually, the harvest comes after patience and after work. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Chad Wilson to discuss what it takes to achieve financial freedom, the difference between being rich and being wealthy, and how to raise kids that are smart, not spoiled. You can start way earlier than you actually think you can. You could literally talk to a three-year-old about when you're at the grocery store about things that you're buying, how much they cost, where did the money come from? This is why mommy went to work this week so we could afford things like what we're having for dinner. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. This has been long overdue. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on. I know you you just bring a wealth of knowledge. You've now written how many books is it? Four books? Four books so far, yes. You set a goal of writing a book a year for how many years? Or just forever? Yeah, I got bored during COVID in the beginning and I figured I should set a stupid goal. So I set a goal to write and publish 10 books in 10 years. So I'm four for four and I got six more to go. There you go. All right. For those listening that may not be familiar with you or maybe haven't read any of the books, if you could just kind of share a bit of your background or maybe even some of your upbringing or early influences that kind of shaped who you are today. Yeah. So I grew up here in Southern California. I'm definitely a beach boy, beach bum. I love the ocean. My wife and I love to travel. So I'm married with five kids. That's usually what makes me a little bit weird, but got five kids. My oldest is 19. My youngest is eight. I'm a wealth management professional, but specifically for entrepreneurs with at least $10 million to invest, really focused on the growth-oriented go-getters who are not looking to retire and quit, but looking to continue to grow and innovate. Typically, they also care about other people. They got families. They like to travel. They're into health and fitness. They've got hobbies and interests. So those are the people I work for primarily, but I, I consider myself more of an entrepreneur investor, author than just a financial guy. But I've got a, a you know a bunch of different ventures in the financial space. So it's a little bit of background. So for somebody listening, let's say they heard that 10 million no, you know, number in assets and they think, oh man, I'm not there yet. 
if you can help kind of describe to get there then come on it's trying what are you waiting for look i'm with you i'm with you i just i don't want anyone to tune out right at the beginning and think that what we're no, going to talk about right. is not relevant to them yeah yeah for sure so it hasn't always been like that when i started at merrill lynch in 2003 my minimum was 100,000 and i was told by my managers that i could never i would never find clients with at least $100,000 especially since i was young and, and experienced and so some of you who've read that book 10x is easier than 2x my story is in chapter two, and it's talking about raising your floor, raising your minimum standards, changing your identity to match what you really want out of your future. And so I definitely am not exclusively giving information and insights to people with only 10 million plus. That's just our business model, but created businesses and written books for people of all different backgrounds, primarily though in the entrepreneurial space. So most of your listeners and law firm owners and you know, these people are great entrepreneurs. I've met many of them. So, and I, and I know you've worked with entrepreneurs, just the, the full gamut. I have to ask is you're, you're someone who has a lot of experience working with people from those that have, let's say six figures in investable assets, the seven figures to eight figures to nine figures, just having worked with so many people. And I get it, you know, everybody's different, but what do you see as the differences between those individuals, perhaps differences in mindset, if you will? Yeah. The differences I see are number one, serious discipline. I see those who get to that eight figure and nine figure level as just having serious discipline. And it's not just in their financial life, although that's required. There's a lot of sloppy seven figure business owners who spend every penny they make. Their profits could go from 1 million to 3 million and they spend it all. doesn't really matter that they made 3 million because they spent most of it. Whereas those who get to the next level have real financial discipline. That's a little bit highlighted in my book, Fit for Wealth, that talks about the discipline corollary between the pursuit of health and the pursuit of wealth and the principles that align together, where they really connect those two. And I see that that discipline really weaving throughout the higher level clients I worked with. I'd also say they just think a lot bigger. They don't think that they don't deserve it. They just go for bigger goals. They don't really limit themselves by, I shouldn't need that much and therefore I'm not going to aim for that much. I think there's a lot of limiting beliefs that keep us stuck in the excellent and they don't allow us to pursue that true unleashed freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've mentioned in the past that financial freedom is closely tied to overall freedom. And I, and I want to dig into this because it seems like most entrepreneurs start businesses because they're seeking freedom, right? If you ask enough why questions, it usually comes back to they want freedom in some way. And then this idea of financial freedom, I think has become very popular, especially in the last few years, like everybody wants it. Why do you feel like this is more important than ever? I feel like it's more important than ever because as, well, if you just look economically, that's my business degree is economics, is the way the world is going, first of all, inflation is extremely high and it's been higher than reported for a long time. So things are getting more expensive. And with things getting more expensive and debt becoming more expensive and interest rates are high right now, like if you don't take some control of your financial future by being disciplined and really creating that financial freedom, you're going to be at the mercy of people who may or may not have your best interests. And the more obligated and tied down you are, the less you're able to make an impact, the less you're able to do good things, the less you're able to have that security in your future that you really are going to need or want at some point. Like if, if a family member gets sick, your financial freedom allows you to potentially get them the care they need or provide the extra support they need so that they can be comfortable in a way that keeps their dignity. It also allows you to make an impact on the experiences that you can give to your family, creates opportunities for your team members, your employees, like 
financial freedom impacts way more than just you or you and your spouse. It's a, it's a big deal. How would you define financial freedom? Because I think sometimes people throw this word around and it seems like sometimes they even have like the wrong number in mind of what they think that yeah. would allow them to do or what it would enable them to do. What, what does financial freedom really mean? To me, financial freedom means, first of all, you have like stress-free money. You have money that comes in whether you are working for it or not. I use the word passive income because it's commonly used. I don't love it. I like stress-free money. I like money that comes in without any stress and doesn't require me, doesn't require my thinking or any kind of my obligation of time commitment. I think financial freedom really just means that the stress-free money that comes in far exceeds the expenses and money that goes out. It's that simple. I mean, it's a cash flow for kids board game that we play with our little kids. Like it's the opportunity to not have to work if you don't want to. I think the rest of us who maybe haven't yet achieved that are in that game of hopefully building towards that. But until we have that set up to where our investments are providing enough stress-free money, then we're going to be kind of stuck in that trap. And I imagine for, for some people that are listening to this, the idea of financial freedom, it can seem like a pipe dream to an extent, or they say, hey, it would be nice, but maybe this is not possible for me. Or they just don't believe that the concept you shared on, of stress-free money, like that's a possibility. Or some people, it can sound like someone's trying to sell them something. Now, you and I know that that's not true, but what is the root of this? Is it just a lack of like financial education in, you know, in our educational institutions or like just people not learning the right way to be able to invest their money? What do you think is the root of it? I don't blame the people who think that. I think it's overwhelming because there's so, like you said, Michael, there's so much information out there and people throw around the terms all over the place. I think financial advisor is a misused term. Like people don't really know what that means. What is a financial planner? What is a financial advisor? Don't really know. There could be hundreds of definitions. Financial freedom is thrown out there like everything. Investment advice is everywhere from TikTok to Instagram to anywhere you want to look. And so it is difficult to filter out the noise and understand what's actually quality advice. I think that's a challenge today. And a lot of you attorneys out there are probably thinking the same thing. Like anyone could pay money to put up a billboard, but the quality of advice is not the same at every firm. Yeah. So I think it's the same in my industry. Everyone can put up an ad or say the terms financial freedom. That doesn't actually equal quality financial advice. Stress-free money financial freedom, I think it's available to everyone. The good news is the number is way, probably way smaller than you think. And in my first book, I write about how it's not the number, the lump sum. It's not that 10 million, that 20 million, even that 2 million that you need to have saved up. It's the cash flow that comes in. How much do I need to spend every month to be comfortable? And how much stress-free money can I create from the investments I've built up? That's where you really get that peace of mind and that confidence. When you start to see that those numbers getting closer and eventually your stress-free money passes up your expenses. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make when it comes to money management or even just investing anything around money? Well, number one, no clear goals. Investing without clarity, investing without goals, investing without having a real sophisticated strategy first. I also would say not taking any risk. A lot of people have just money sitting in the bank. It's okay now, maybe if you're getting four or 5%, it's not terrible but it's not useful. Inflation is high. So most people have sat on money for a long time and they wait and they wait and they wait and they miss opportunities. You can't sit on the sidelines and get to financial freedom. You cannot save your way. You cannot earn your way to financial freedom. You have to invest your way there. Another mistake is on the other extreme, which is taking too much risk. I do see a lot of people who get caught up in these private investment deals, private equity, venture capital, 
And that's almost all they do because they get excited about the new deal, the story, the sizzle. And great investing most of the time is really boring. It doesn't have a sexy story that you're excited about. It just compounds and grows, kind of like a farmer out there just working the fields. Eventually, the harvest comes after patience and after work. So people get excited and they chase down these big opportunities with these really high promising returns. And most of the time, it doesn't work out. And so they get discouraged and maybe they don't invest or they just switch strategies or they put all their money in cash and they really never took advantage of that long-term compounding effect. I'd love to dig in. I know you uh, you just shared like you can't really save or even earn your way to financial freedom. Why is that? You can't earn your way to financial freedom because you cannot do it with salary or wages or profits. It has to be through investments. So people will raise their standard of living and have that lifestyle creep regardless of how much they earn. I remember meeting with a surgeon in Newport Beach, California here, 2004, 2005. He was making seven figures back then. He thought he was going to be able to retire at a younger age. And when we really peeled the onion, we looked at his financials and he had no chance. He didn't even have a chance to retire at normal age, let alone five, seven years earlier, like he hoped, because he had ramped up the expenses. He'd ramped up excessive consumer debt, fancy cars, second homes, and just had gotten used to that lifestyle of spending that there was no chance he could make his way up without cutting a lot of expenses. So you can't earn your way there. So people think, well, I'll start investing when I make more money. I just need to get to X in my income or my profits, and then I'll suddenly I'll start investing more and I'll get serious about it. But that's, that's not going to work. You have to treat your $100,000 responsibly to ever have a chance at a million and the same goes for 10 million or 100 million. You're not going to get smarter about wealth by getting more wealth. You're only going to get more wealth when you're smart with what you already have. I've seen this firsthand. I mean, you and I have even talked about this, that I've been in rooms where there's eight-figure entrepreneurs that have run eight-figure organizations for multiple decades, and they don't have financial freedom, which is just baffling to me. And yet, it's not uncommon. What are some of the other mistakes? Not just the individual, but it seems like the partner that you choose in life seems to have a big impact oh, on uh, on financial freedom impact. and just even other decisions. Yeah, massive impact. Been married almost 23 years. I'm very grateful because I didn't know anything. When I got married, I was so young and dumb and in love. I was a college student. So very grateful that it turns out I, my wife and I both chose wisely. I think she chose wisely, but choosing who you partner with, whether it's for financial advice most importantly, who you live with, who your spouse or partner is. I mean, that's critical. Their, their mindset towards growth. There are a lot of business owners whose spouses do not believe in growth or believe that maybe trying to aim for too much money is bad. It's, it's going to corrupt them when really money is a magnifier. So money in itself is not going to ruin you. It's going to make you more of who you already are. Another big mistake I see is overpaying for the investments or the financial advice you're getting. Look, there are 500,000, 600,000-ish financial professionals out there. There's a lot of great people out there at every level, right? There are people at every level. So you might be matched up with someone who's not at the right level or not just in the right lane. If you're training for a 5K, it's not the same as someone training for an ultra marathon. So once you have a way different coach with different skill sets, if you're training for a marathon or an ultra marathon or an Ironman versus a 5K versus I just need to get up off the couch and walk a little bit around the block. So I think 
not really understanding who you're taking financial advice from makes a difference. The cost of what you pay makes a difference. Our industry is very confusing on purpose. You know, I worked at Merrill Lynch, one of the big, big Wall Street banks for nine years. And the stuff I saw was pretty wild back in 2002, 2003, in the very beginning, the lack of transparency. And I think there's still a lot of that in the Wall Street world. Yeah. So there, there's going to be people listening that, of course, are going to go the DIY route. They're going to want to try to do it themselves. And I want to speak to them. But I also want to talk about just how do you choose the right expert? Because for any lawyers that are listening, they know firsthand, like choosing an attorney from a client's perspective is also very, very difficult, right? There's an oversaturation, if you will, of legal options. Most of them are saying the personal injury space or work on contingency. So it's free to work with them pretty much. Everyone says they're the best. Everyone's got the same awards. They're all super lawyers. So consumers are faced with the same challenges. So I'm just curious, how would you advise people be able to kind of separate the signal from the noise? You got to look for the super advisors. I'm just kidding. I would say you need to make sure they work with people just like you. That may sound like really simple, but I don't think most clients ever check that. You don't want to be the biggest or the smallest, and you want to make sure they work with people like you and probably slightly above you. I think you want to work with financial people who give comprehensive advice and do a lot of question asking beforehand. A lot of people in our industry don't do a lot of question asking. They've got products to sell. They've got things that they want to push from the firms they're working for. I think an important part is looking for a fiduciary. I mean, that's a term you guys all know in the legal field, but 4% to 5% of financial professionals are fiduciaries, complete independent fiduciaries, which means 95 to 96% are not. That's astonishing, yet nobody talks about it. And guess what? The fiduciary standard was almost going to be implemented as a minimum requirement for all financial professionals a few years back. Guess what? There were tens of millions of dollars lobbied for against that. By whom? By the big financial firms, big insurance companies that have huge sales forces across the country. No, that 95%. So of course, why would they fight the fiduciary standard? Why would they not want conflict-free financial advice to be available to everyone? It's not as lucrative. Right. So my personal biased opinion, because I'm a fiduciary, but I wasn't before. I was at Merrill Lynch. So by nature, I was working at the huge bank. I was working at the big investment company. We were not allowed to be fiduciaries because that's where we work. But I eventually kind of learned after being there nine years, like, okay, this is one route. I'm going to go the independent route, which is going to be different, but it's going to be a lot easier for me to give advice to everyone and just tell them what I actually think without the restrictions and constraints of a big bank with their own agenda. So I personally think you can find great fiduciaries who have some credentials. You know, I don't think there's any like special credential that means way more than something else, but who've got some education, who have some experience, who work with people just like you, who you get along with, who ask lots of questions, who are transparent about all the costs. I think that's critical. Who talk about goals and things, who don't promise investment returns specifically. I think that's a little bit of a risk there is that people try to forecast and overpromise, and that causes people to make a lot of bad mistakes. So hopefully those are some helpful tips to finding a good financial professional. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to touch on uh, two things. I know in the past you mentioned that having a lot of money sitting in the bank is like having lazy money. What are some ways that people listening can put their money to work? I would never hire a bunch of employees and tell them to sit on the couch and just wait until 
I need them. I don't need them yet. I just want them to sit on the couch and be on call. But that's what we do with our money. At the very, very, very worst, and I don't recommend this, but you could easily put your money into treasuries or CDs and earn five or five and a half percent right now. It's better than just doing nothing. It depends on what your investment goals are, though. I can't really give blanket investment advice to your listeners and audience today, but I will say this. Putting your money to work as an owner is going to make a greater long-term return on investment than anything else. You have owners and you have lenders. I'm personally an owner. Our clients are mostly owners. So when you own, you have equity. And when you have equity, you're buying stocks, you're buying real estate, you're buying things that you can own and see appreciation. And I love real estate. I have lots of different kinds of real estate myself. I will say this though, there's nothing like being an owner in the stock market. Like, would you rather own Google stock or the building that Google has their business run out of, you know, would you rather bought that building 20 years ago or bought the stock? Like there's an exponential growth in the markets that's available nowhere else. So I think having a plan before you invest is critical. And then becoming an owner is also critical, being able to be long-term patient. So there's a different strategy when you're talking about your law firm's cash in the bank that's just sitting there. Maybe you're going to need that in three to six or 12 months. That's different than the money you as an owner are going to be investing for your long-term financial security. Those are two different conversations. Yep. And speaking of the, of the mental side of this, I want to talk about the role like emotions can play in, in financial decisions, right? Because a lot of times this stuff is simple, but not easy. And especially when there's any sort of market volatility, people tend to freak out, right? So what is a way that people can maintain a rational approach to their investments, to their money overall, even when there's ups and downs in the market? First of all, that's completely normal. Everyone goes through it. Doesn't matter how wealthy or how unwealthy you are, you're going to have those emotions. It's a roller coaster. That's part of the experience. If there was no volatility, you wouldn't deserve to earn that 8 to 12 percent average return in the stock market. That's just part of the deal. So one thing that we do, we create an investment policy guide up front. So we make commitments as a firm and we ask our clients to make the same commitments. We sign it, we look at it, we discuss the goals, we discuss the strategy. We even have a what if plan, like what if there's a big market crash? How are we going to respond to that? And I think having that as a benchmark to look back on is very important because when things get rocky, you can look back on it. For example, 2007, 2008, the stock market was down a lot. I had clients that were traveling together in Europe. I got a phone call on my cell phone and it was a very bad week in the stock market. And they were in Austria and they were huddled around. These two couples were huddled around their phone on the speaker phone. And they're like, Chad, hey, it's so-and-so and so-and-so. We're all, we're just watching the markets, watching the news over here. It's almost midnight over where we're at please tell me you've sold everything. Like we can't continue to watch this go down. And I was like, are you guys sitting down? And they said, yeah. And I said, not only did I not sell everything, like today we actually moved some of the money into buying some aggressive stock investments in your portfolios. And one of the guys, he said some words that we, we don't normally say at a business call. And he said, I can't take this. And he walked away and the other guy stayed on the phone. And I said, look, you guys hired me because you trust me. You hired me to do the hard work in the trenches. You hired me to get the results regardless of how scary it is. 
So I'm going to need you guys to just trust me on this. We can go back and look at the investment policy guide and we'll go through it together. But this is what we stated as the goals. I asked that key question, have your goals changed? And the answer was no. And I said, okay, if the goals haven't changed, we're not jumping off the ship. We're not going to jump off the roller coaster while the ride is still in motion. And guess what? Like three or four years later, those investments bought on that week when they were in Austria are the greatest investments those guys have ever owned. Fast forward to 2020, we have COVID come, markets down 40% in one month. Guess who's asking me, hey, have you found any good deals that we can invest in? Those same two couples. Same two couples are still with us and they're asking me to be to make sure we're hunting for stuff because they remember that experience from 2008. And scary enough, Michael, a lot of financial professionals do the same thing that clients do. They curl up in a ball in a fetal position under their desk with a lot of fear, watching CNBC, not doing anything for the portfolios, maybe even selling out, maybe even selling low. I see it happen. It's disappointing professionally to see that from my peers, but it happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think this has been one of like the greatest predictors of success in all aspects of life has been what someone's time horizon is, right? So it's like meaning that are they able to not just delay gratification, but do they think rather than in weeks and months and maybe in a year, but do they think in longer time scales, right? A decade or more. And when you have a longer time horizon, any short-term fluctuations really don't affect you in the same way. So true. Yeah. And I think you're a great example of that, Michael. Everyone who knows you and knows your business knows how long-term decisions have helped you filter out how you're going to build and grow what you've done. But Dr. Benjamin Hardy calls that looking at his future self, you know, my future self. And if you look forward of where you want to be and use that as your filter, looking to the present, you're going to make better decisions, both with your money, your health, your family, everything else that you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also just this idea that you don't have to win today. I think this is a lot of the problem with social media, because if you go on any of these platforms, TikTok, Instagram, there's somebody talking about some three-day course that they can take, or they could become a millionaire at the end, or some real estate asset they could buy that take them from rags to riches or cryptocurrency or NFTs or you know, whatever it is. And that attracts a lot of people because this idea of, I don't have to wait a long time and I don't really have to put too much in. And then my life can go from being wherever I am today to just abundance in a short period of time. Yeah. It's the Amazon prime or it's uh, the microwave theory. It's just, it doesn't work with wealth, especially it doesn't work in most places, but especially wealth. Like that's where people lose a lot of money. You're not going to have that good long-term perspective if you don't have clear targets. Yeah, You're not going to hit any target you don't set. So it starts with really clearly defining where you want to go. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it was Albert Einstein who said it, or maybe it was like Warren Buffett's referenced it before. And he said that like compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And I think sometimes people hear this, they don't fully understand it. It's almost like you have to see it to believe it. Can you speak to this? Because I think this is where all the magic comes in. Yeah, I can give an example of that. When I was first became a dad, you know, my daughter is 19 now. I'm 44. So I was 25 when she was born and we weren't making a lot of money. I was 25. I was in this industry, but I was just starting out. And I said, I've got to invest. I got to back up what I teach. So I'm going to invest in her college savings account. And I just started investing. I think it was maybe 25 bucks pay period. Then it was 50, maybe it was then a hundred. It wasn't ever a big amount. And over time, it just kept growing and compounding and growing and compounding with the markets. And over a 19 year period, it's significantly grown to where I look back and I'm like, this is a six figure account. 
and I just looked at my contributions and I had contributed less than $22,000 of that 100,000. And I thought, could I afford today to just put 100,000 into an account for her to pay for college expenses? Of course I could have, but wouldn't it be a lot smarter to put in 22,000 stretched out over a 19 year period and have it give me over 100,000? Like that's a very simple example, it's real life. I didn't have a lot of money, so I started small. But compound interest is something that really, like you said, Michael, people underestimate it. The growth that's possible in compound interest is something else. And that's when people get mixed up. They chase get-rich-quick schemes when really they're going to get wealthy by compound interest instead of the get-rich-quick. Rich and wealthy are not the same, by the way. That's a whole different topic. But Let's get into that. I'm just curious. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, to me, that's a big, I've gotten asked about that. It's been a while, but I used to talk about that a lot. Rich to me is pure financial and often materialistic, whereas wealthy is time. Wealthy is time plus money, and rich is more just like money plus stuff. And I think you can be rich and not wealthy. You can be rich by having a really high income. And I think maybe that's what some of the law firm owners out there are dealing with. And I think it's very doable to to kind of flip that switch and say, I'm not going to try to be rich. I'm not going to try to be the big sizzle personally. You can be the big sizzle for your firm and attract all that marketing business, of course. But financially at home, if you've got health, if you've got financial freedom, if you've got lots of money set aside, you have a team that's amazing. You've got partners that are amazing. The firm is growing and you have more time freedom, like that's actual wealth. That's a balanced life. Rich, you're still stressed out. You're on the grind. You're working 60 to 80 hours a week. You're not collaborating, hiring, delegating properly. You're trying to keep up with your payments. You've got huge obligations. You're constantly looking when that next big settlement is going to be because you already spent all the cash flow from the last few. You're getting loans on your payables and your next settlements coming up because you've spent all the money on big flashy stuff. So I think there's just a big difference in wealth and rich and a lot of what's glorified online is rich. What do you find through your experience? What leads to that shift? Because I understand, you know, everybody has different seasons in their life and especially a lot of entrepreneurs. They've got those early years where they're putting in a lot of sweat equity. There's the long hours. It's kind of hard to avoid that, especially in the early years. But where do you find that shift happens when they go from, okay, I'm working 80 hours a week. We've got plenty of money, but maybe I need to do this differently. Does something bad have to happen? I don't think something bad has to happen, but something bad will happen. So you can either choose to make that transition or you will be forced to. That's the way I really look at it is either you can proactively say, I'm going to choose a healthier lifestyle and I'm going to be more balanced and trusting, or eventually something's going to happen business-wise or health-wise where I have no other choice. And I think, unfortunately, that's often the case is these business owners and attorneys and, and entrepreneurs in their 50s, they're stressed to the max. And maybe it's impacted your health or your family relationships, but you've gone through some stuff. And now you're like, okay, I can't do that again. I got to do it the right way this time. I think for me, it's always been more about having a healthy home life healthy family relationships, personal health and fitness, all these things have made me want to seek that path out quicker and not wait till I'm 60 years old to start thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about your latest book. So Fit for Wealth, 
the transformation that you underwent and even just the similarities between health and let's say financial fitness, but also just personal health and just the correlation between the two. And I got to point out for your listeners, if you guys haven't read Fit for Wealth, Mr. Mogul is quoted multiple times and his story is featured prominently in that book. So if you don't have a copy, I'm happy to send you a free copy as a listener for his podcast. Yeah, Fit for Wealth is really the concept that we can seek elite health and abundant wealth at the same time with the same principles. They're not mutually exclusive. A lot of people, especially I think in the legal industry who are just grinding out there, like you said, saturated markets, trying to get to 5 million, 10 million of revenues, 100 million of revenues, like you're really burning yourself out. You're grinding for that success and you're going to worry about your health eventually, but that's not how it works. You're going to show up as your best self at work when you're your best self actually physically. If you don't feel good and have your energy filled up, you're not going to be the best attorney. You're not going to be the best business leader. You're not going to be the best husband or father or wife or mother. Like you have to be your best self. The principles of being ridiculously ambitious and hiring only the top experts, working with technology that helps you really track and measure your progress. Doing these things is really going to get you both better situation to be healthy and wealthy at the same time. And I think that's what's, you know, for me, I was always very much into health and fitness. My family's a lot of athletic, a lot of athletes in my family. And I let myself go for six months and I, I hated where I was. I think we make changes when we're finally disgusted with our situation. And that's where I found myself about a year and a month ago this time. Mm -hmm. And then you underwent this journey, which you look great. How many pounds did you lose? I lost 50 pounds. Yeah. So that was naturally, painfully, there's a lot of work. I set the goal. So we're talking about be ridiculously ambitious. I told my new trainer that I wanted to lose 50 pounds. And he's like, that is an insane goal. To do that in one year is pretty ridiculous. And I said, I want to do that in three months. He wanted to hang up on me, but I was a new client. So I didn't meet that goal. I cut 44 pounds in three months, but man, I felt great. I felt so much better, more energy, more confidence, more excitement. I felt like my old self again. And eventually over the next few months, I lost that other six pounds. So I just think that we can make such a difference in our business and how we show up everywhere. When we're doing the little things, when we're staying disciplined, when we're doing what we want to commit to ourselves to do for our future, then we're going to show up with a lot more energy and confidence everywhere we go. And it will make a difference in the impact on the bottom line. You will make more money if you are taking care of yourself. There's no doubt in my mind. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I remember it's like so much of this is just honoring your commitments to yourself. I mean, when you and I earlier this year, we were at a conference. I remember we flew in. Most people fly into a conference. They're relaxing in the hotel room. Maybe they order some room service. They're hanging out. Then they come down for the cocktail hour. But I went down to the gym. I saw you in the gym these small decisions, right? Sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes you're tired, but it's the commitments we make. And I'll add to that. Not only did we see each other in the gym pretty much every day, every night, I think the gym people said you were living there, but we were sitting at the conference as well. And they've got all kinds of treats and desserts and all kinds of stuff. And we both pulled out like a little turkey chopstick from Trader Joe's trying to hit our protein, high protein, low calorie, healthy diet stuff. So it is. It's the little decisions that make the big long-term impact. And the more consistent you are, the more it just becomes of your identity. It's who you are. Once making good decisions and having discipline is who you are, it's a lot easier to keep those commitments to yourself.
I want to talk about something else. I know you mentioned this in the book about hiring only top experts. And I think just for those listening, this can seem or sound like self-serving. So this is an area I agree with 100% because I think there's two types of people. There's like those that ask for advice and then those who pay for help. And, you know, I always bet on the one that pays for help. But why is that so important? I mean, and I get it. Everyone's in a different place. Some will say, well, maybe I can't afford to hire this type of expert. Maybe I have to try to learn it myself. But why is this the fastest path? It's such an accelerator to goal achievement. I've had so many trainers that I've tried in the past that I've done okay with. It wasn't until I found the CEO coaching group for health and fitness and working out and all this stuff where I saw results so fast and the accountability, it clicked. It doesn't mean it was the most expensive in the world. Like it wasn't the most expensive trainer I've ever been quoted by, but it was a top expert. And they showed me results from other clients that I got excited about. And so I hired him. And guess what? It worked for me. And I've referred tons of friends and it's worked for them. So I think you have to consider, you have to hire top experts to get them on your team to accelerate your goal achievement, especially in a saturated market like you're in. If you're in the legal industry, there are attorneys obviously everywhere trying to go after the same clients you're going after, the same potential clients. So if you have the top experts on your team, you have the top experts doing different things for your business to grow, you're going to have that unfair advantage that no one else has. You can't afford not to hire the top experts. I submit that there are things in your budget that you have excuses for that you can get rid of and hire experts and coaches to fill the gap that will get you to a higher level to be able to pay for whatever you were cutting out anyways. So like replace something else, but I don't think you should be a DIY expert in everything. It doesn't make sense. If you're great at what you do as an entrepreneur, stick to that and then hire the amazing who's and pros and collaborators and coaches to do the rest. Stick with what you're good at. Is there, just particularly in the finance space, is there a point where you would advise someone to say, hey, at this point, you should consider hiring you know, a financial expert? Is it like a certain revenue level or is it when they hit a point of complexity or just think everyone should just do it? It's a good question. Who needs a financial advisor? That's a great question. I think everyone needs some kind of a professional financial plan. Like I would tell my kids, even if they're 26 years old, 27 years old, newlyweds, not a lot of money, get a financial plan. You don't need a full-time financial advisor managing stuff if you only got $10,000 in the bank, right? But I think you should have someone professionally helping you manage investments if you've got at least four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to invest, you should definitely have somebody helping with that. That's too much money, too too serious of money just to leave it by the wayside or try to do it yourself on the side. I wouldn't do appendix surgery on myself because I read some periodicals about it and watched some YouTubes. Like I'm not gonna invest my own money as a non professional if I'm a full time entrepreneur in something else. So you need professional support. So there's plenty of great financial professionals out there who work at all different levels. I want to shift gears because I know there's a lot of people listening who are parents themselves. They're parents of children, young children or older children. And I think the first book that I read of yours was Smart Not Spoiled. And it's like the seven money skills kids must master before leaving the nest. Because I think the fear of any entrepreneur is raising entitled kids. Why is it so important for families to teach their kids about money versus their children learning about it through experience or the outside world? Because nobody else is going to teach them. And because they're already learning by watching you anyways. 
So my biggest fear was I've got five kids, very intentional parent. I've always tried to do things differently. I've never paid allowance to any of my kids. We've always said that allowances is just creates dependency. It doesn't create any kind of innovation or kids take an initiative, but it's critical to teach your kids about money, to give them those resources and those skill sets to be successful as they grow up because they're learning about money, but it's just not the right stuff because they're just learning by watching you click a button and then Amazon box shows up on your doorstep the next day. Where does money come from? I don't know. My parents clicked a button and stuff showed up at the house and we got it. I don't even know how much it costs, but it showed up right away. And we have resources and means and technology that our kids have access to that we never had access to. I grew up in a pretty modest uh, household. My parents shared a car. When I was first married, I was making six bucks an hour. I was taking the public shuttle bus to work. My wife was going to college. I was a part-time student trying to finish my degree. We live in a 400 square foot apartment, downstairs basement. I joked that we could vacuum the whole place without unplugging the cord. And, you know, we have a way different lifestyle now. That's always scared me about what are my kids going to turn out to be. So I had to probably go a little extreme on the strict side of how to teach them to be resourceful. But four of them, even my 10-year-old, have their own little small business. They have to pay for everything they do. They work really, really hard. So they earn their own money. They do a lot of interesting things that most kids their age have never experienced. So my, my daughter earned money and saved up for this three-week humanitarian aid trip to Africa last summer. No cell phone allowed. Did not know any of the teenagers she was meeting up with. And my son just got approved for the same experience, but in India next summer. And he's going to have to fund that himself as well. So I'm very, very focused on the mission of teaching kids to be smart, not spoiled, and helping families pass on heritage, not inheritance. It's about so much more than money. It's about values. What does it mean to be a mogul? What does it mean to be a Willardson? We teach these things. We talk about these things. If you have a business plan and you have ideas for your business, you have all these goals, like why don't you have that stuff for your family and your kids? That's how I feel about it. So I guess just for any parent who's listening, I mean, how early can you start in instilling these types of values, this type of mindset, and then any suggestions for, I don't know, even just tactical things that, that parents can do? You can start way earlier than you actually think you can. You could literally talk to a three-year-old about when you're at the grocery store, about things that you're buying, how much they cost, where did the money come from? This is why mommy went to work this week so we could afford things like what we're having for dinner. Here's two items at the store. I'm going to buy this because of this reason. You can teach kids about money. I always taught them about taxes. Now, I don't eat desserts right now. I've been really healthy in the last year. But I would always take the biggest bites of my kids' food and tell them this is the dad tax, and that's a pretty common joke. One situation, we were at a restaurant, really pretty nice restaurant with the kids, and I took a huge bite of my youngest son's hamburger before he started and he pounded the table. He was like five years old and he's like, I hate taxes, just as loud as he could. And everyone in the restaurant looked over and he just goes, I hate him, I hate taxes. And then he put his face on the table and like, it was so funny. People started laughing around us. I kind of rubbed his back and I was like, son, now you know how all of us feel. So I think you can do little things and teach young kids about money. It's a joke now because our kids are a little older, but 
you can do a lot of things to teach kids about money. You can have activities. I think the cash flow for kids is a great board game. My kids have played that. I just gathered my eight-year-old and a bunch of his buddies, and we played that last week. There were probably 10 kids. Most of them playing it for the first time, so it was a lot of fun. For people that are listening, let's say they have a very different lifestyle today than the type of lifestyle, let's say they grew up in where now they may have a pool at their home, they stay in nice hotels, when they travel, they're doing pretty extravagant things that they, of course, have earned, but they worry, is this going to rub off on my kids? Is this going to create any sort of entitlement? That's a lot of us in that situation and that the risk is real. And that's why I think saying no to your kids with reasons is important, I think. Too often parents say yes. So I think just because you can doesn't mean you should, just because you can afford it. Now, look, I'm at this stage in my life and my business, I'm not staying in a crappy hotel. So I'm not going to like punish my wife and I so that my kids don't experience a nice hotel. I try to use it the opposite way. Hey, I'm pretty transparent about a lot of things. So it costs this, it costs us this much to be here. And the kids are like, what? Yeah, this dinner costs this much tonight or it costs this much to go to Disneyland but this is the work that I've put in to get here. Dad, can I get this souvenir? Can I get this or that? Absolutely. You can, but you're going to have to pay for it. So you're going to have to find a way to earn some money. Here are some ways you can earn some money. So I think we need to be careful and aware. There's no way to avoid the fact that your kids are exposed to nicer things or better things than when you were a kid. That's just kind of the way it is now. I think it's the attitude that matters more. I've been told by a lot of my oldest are 19, 16, and 13. And thankfully, they're really good kids. They have sound, sound minds. They're very grounded. My daughter, after a college basketball game last night, stayed after the game, and there was a big special needs group that came to the game. There was probably 40 adults, 18, maybe 16 to like 30 special needs age people, and she was just signing autographs and taking pictures and giving hugs to these people. I'm like, most of the players, they high-fived, and then they went back to the locker room. But McKinley was out there, the last one, just signing autographs. And I was like, you know what? That's internal. Having lots of money doesn't change who you are internally. So I think focusing on who your kids are becoming is more important than how much money you have or what hotel you're staying at. Yeah. Now there's a question. I know this is like a very divisive type question. I've seen different people have very strong willed in how they view this. But what about passing on money to children and just, I've seen some people that say, I'm going to pass on everything. I've heard others say, I'm not going to leave them with anything. What are your views? I had one client back in the day tell me if all I had left was a quarter and that was all I had left before I was about to die, I would swallow the quarter. I don't want my kids to have anything. And there's other people, you know, we have a client who founded a nationally known business who his personal net worth is in the hundreds of millions and he's got many kids. And his goal is to pass on not a penny. He's given it all to charity. And he's a little bit extreme on that side of being very worried that any penny passed on unearned by his kids is really going to ruin them. And there's other people who are setting up nonprofits, a foundation as a family. And what they're doing is they're having like annual family planning meetings with their teenagers. And they're saying, what charity do we really want to care about and impact this year? And one of the kids, it was their turn. They love animals. And they're like, let's focus on this charity that saves and rescues animals in harm. And so it was cool because they rallied around that daughter and they put a lot of money and resources into it. And then they went and visited with the board. The daughter under 12 made a presentation to the nonprofit board about why they're making this big donation. So I think it's just 
how you handle the wealth. I don't think there's a wrong or right way. And most people have some kids that are going to be responsible and some that are going to be very irresponsible, regardless of how you train them. Like I personally think that you can do a lot more good when the kids are younger than passing on money when they're 60 or 80 years old. Yeah. So I've seen cooler stuff done like entrepreneurship, family funds, or real estate or stock investment funds for the grandkids or something like that. That's way more interesting and useful to me, giving while living than just passing it on to a 68-year-old surviving child. That's a real individual conversation and people with different marriages and second marriages and stepkids and all that stuff, that really changes also your decision-making. So you got to really think that through. How do you, uh, Chad, how do you define success? Success to me starts at home. My personal life is always a priority. I love the quote by David O. McKay that says, no success can compensate for failure in the home. So for me, I want to be first and foremost successful in my marriage and my family. I want to be a good engaged father and a good husband. I'm definitely not perfect there, but I'm trying. I'm trying to do a good job there. And to me, success is keeping your commitments to yourself and to your family, faith-based person. So God, family, faith, and success, I think they all go together with keeping the principles and staying true to what you believe, whether anyone's watching you or not. I think success is not financially based. It's really based on principles. I think that's that would be my answer. And Chad, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer means that you're willing to step out above the norm. You're willing to stick your neck out. Changing the game to me doesn't mean you're going to fit in. So every time you have a chance to make a new significant commitment, you just step up and say yes. I love the quote that has been said by many people that fear is wetting your pants and courage is going forward with wet pants. And I think being a game changer, you got to make big decisions with wet pants. You got to go forward and change the industry by doing stuff maybe that's a little bit different. You have to be willing to spend the money and the time and the commitment to go big if you're going to actually change the game. I want to give a huge thank you to Chad Wilson for taking the time to join us on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Chad Wilson, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh,